This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated on it, either by its hosts or any guests, is to be construed as psychological, medical, or legal advice. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Mike Trapiano, and this is Secret Sun, the podcast about searching identity and secrecy. I was told I should do this at the beginning of the show, so here goes. Please like, subscribe, if you feel like it, write a review, and why not head over to the Patreon page and see what's going on over there. Thanks for listening. If you like this announcement, I'm going to say it again at the end of the show. Here's the show. My own mother died last year. My natural mother, my so-called birth mother. Not the woman who raised me, who I consider a guardian, but, you know, my mother, the woman I was inside for allegedly nine months. Who knows? It's all very foggy. The whole history of it is blurred. But I got a call last year from her cousin, and she left me a message saying, call me. And I thought, oh boy, I know what this means. My mother, who had cancer at that time, is either getting much worse or she's gone already. I called my cousin. She said, your mom died. I didn't feel much. I didn't really know my mom. I met her. I found her through a detective. I lost contact. I found her again when she was 80. And then we sort of lost contact again. How much can you reconnect, really, when you've been separating from somebody their entire life? Your entire life? Almost their entire life. So my mom's cousin told me, and I didn't feel that much. I asked my wife, is this the kind of thing people post on Facebook about? And she said, yes. I thought, okay, seems a little personal, but I'll do it. I posted a little description. My mother died. I posted about five photos. And I've never had a post like this. The comments, the, the hearts, 150 comments, 500 hearts, huggy emojis. And it was only then, as the comments started pouring in, Comments like, oh, you never replace a mother, a mother is, there's only one mother, blah, 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 along that vein, you never forget your mother, that I realized how odd my situation is. Because, yeah, actually, I did replace a mother. And I was told, you know, I lost my mother once before when I was, what, 10 days old, and there was not this type of Facebook response then. It was just the vibe was, well, forget about her. You've got a new mother now. So that's how I've approached mothers in general. And I think any kind of death in general is just like, well, so what? Just find somebody else. And yet here it is, comment after comment in Facebook. You only have one mother. Mothers are irreplaceable. Of course, this is a hard time. And that made me realize, oh yeah, this should be a harder time for me. It was only as the comments piled up that it became clear to me how much I had missed out on. Our guest today has a very interesting story with her mother. I'm glad beyond belief that I searched and I found my mother, not once but twice. That's luck and that's something, unfortunately, a lot of adoptees 
do not have the experience of. Today's guest is Vicki Graham. She comes to us from Australia, and we talk about a lot of things. Kangaroos, the Aussie language, and of course, mothers and secrecy. Here's Vicky. Good day. Good day. I just realized that's a mirror behind you. I thought it was like a palatial. I mean, it is, pal- <laughs> it is palatial, but. <laughs> this is our second bedroom slash my office slash, you know, where we have our clothes. So. <laughs> so Vicky Graham, I just want to, before we start, right? <laughs> yes. Vicky Graham. Okay. <laughs> No, it's Vicky. I just want. I just want to make sure. <laughs> yeah, okay. the accents over the second C. No, <laughs> I don't know how they do it in Australia. Lovely to see you. You too. I'm an American in Berlin. I'm an American in Australia. Look at us. How do you like being an expat? I do miss sometimes being in an English-speaking country, as do you, probably. Well, I have to say, learning Aussie English is we both ruined a perfectly good language, Australia, and. America. <laughs> it's been interesting as an adoptee being in another country because of the othering is constant. Yes. It was very triggering at first. I've gotten used to it. The moment I open my mouth, bleh, people look and always a conversation. You have your own podcast. With my birth mother. That is interesting. How is it for you talking about adoption and how was it? Is it taboo? For me, it's still a little taboo? I'd say when I was younger, I certainly didn't bring it up much. I was same race as my parents. So people would always tell me like the Anne Heffron, you know, oh, I didn't know you were adopted. I got that answer. And then it would always be kind of weird because then I wasn't sure how far I'd want to take it. So I was more in control of that when I was younger because I would have to bring it up. So that was safer. Talking about it now, I've gotten pretty comfortable with it. I don't know if you're born in California, but you grew up in California. I made the good decision to move here in March of 2020. So I've only been here for almost three years. I moved here because I met an Aussie bloke and fell in love and I'm married to him now. Most of my life, I was in California. And you're a baby scoop era person. Yeah, 1964. My birth mother was shamed and unsupported bad girl. She did the thing you're not supposed to do. She had sex and then she got pregnant, like on top of the having sex. It's so weird. Hardly any sex education. And then these kids get pregnant. (laughs) How is this happening? In my experience, there's so much shame around the story that it's hard to get to the truth of it. The problem with the closed adoption for me was at the heart of it was a lie that formed my identity and I think was really harmful. My birth mother was prime baby creating material. She was a college student. And so the families were lined up to get this sweet adopted baby. And then I came out with a cleft lip and palate. So the two families actually that were lined up to adopt me both said, no, thank you. They didn't tell my birth mother. They told her I was adopted and sent her on her way. The social worker pretty much gave up on me and I went to live in the crippled children's hospital orphanage with all the other unwanted babies. The closed adoption part of it made that possible. And then when my parents came along, they were asked, do you want a special needs baby? The story that was created was that my mother didn't want me. She couldn't afford me. She didn't want me. That was the narrative that I think was so damaging for me. The shame of being unwanted. I know you've said that's how you felt unwanted. I felt unwanted by my birth mother and that was reinforced 
my entire life. That was the narrative. And I was not only was I special needs, I was in an orphanage for so long. I had attachment issues. Adoptees are such survivors. When I see young people, friends of ours or relatives and growing up with their biological families and they all fit, I just think, wow, look at us adoptees, man. We are just like born warriors. Oh, yeah. You said born, made me think of the born identity. The entire narrative is how horrible it would be to have your identity taken away. And that's our story. I do love that movie. That speaks to me. Tell me about it. I always knew I was adopted, but the part of the thing that was wrong was they said, your mother didn't want you. She couldn't handle your needs. She couldn't afford your surgeries. And I always imagined that meant she took one look at me and said, I don't want this deformed, ugly baby. So my parents did that thing. I think they were kind of set up to do this too, to be sort of the heroes. They rescued me. You know, no one else wanted this baby. Aren't they wonderful? And they loved telling the story over and over about how they rescued poor orphan Vicky. And I hated that story so much because it made me feel really thrown away. Of course, I was grateful, but in that story was a lot of pain. I think that's why I didn't choose to talk about being adopted very much because it was wrapped up in so much shame for me. It's a constant reminder of our loss too. People tell these stories. They don't see it like that. No, they just see, isn't it nice? Love is love and they're rescuing us. That's weird. I'm an orphan with two living parents. So I would never have looked for my birth mother. I just never understood an adoptee that would go looking. Why would someone do that? When she threw me away, I would never go look for that. I used to fantasize that I would meet her, but I never had the courage to face the pain of her rejecting me again. I thought about searching constantly. And you're saying you thought about it, but you just thought, well, I'm never going to do it. I've been on the receiving end of being found by my birth mother, and I have searched for and found my birth father. So I have both perspectives. So she found me when I was 30. It took her four years. It was back before DNA and the internet. She used microfiche. She went through a search agency and did it the old fashioned way with letters and finding data. And I just got a call one day. Where were you? California, sleeping in on a Saturday morning. I'd been out late the night before. I thought I'd won a contest because she told me to get a pen, then write a number down. And I, for some reason, my head went to, oh, I've won something. <laughs> I guess I did really in retrospect, incredibly surreal. Did she tell you right away? How did she break it to you? She asked me my name and then my date of birth. And I was sort of slowly realizing, I don't think this is a contest. And then her voice cracked. The reality kind of cracked with it too, because her voice cracked. And she said, when I was this age, I gave up a baby for adoption. And I think you might be my daughter. And there was this trembling in her voice that just pierced my heart. I was still heavily in the fog of denial and how great adoption was. And can you believe I thanked her for giving me away and told her my life was great? Oh, I've had a great life. But on another level, I didn't believe any of what she told me, that she searched for me or that she wanted me. So there was this internal dialogue of, oh my gosh, I can't believe you reached out for me. And then who are you? And I was afraid to tell her how I felt because I realized now I was terrified she'd go away again. So I was a very artificial version of myself for years. We miss out on these rebellious teenage years. And then suddenly they find <laughs> us and we're like, screw you. I don't need you. I'm taking the car. <laughs> I'm going out. That's great. <laughs> How was life going when she found you? 
I had done a lot of therapy. I did not have an adoption-informed therapist. Neither one of us ever even talked about my adoption, but I did a lot of work on self-esteem, being a people pleaser, being codependent. So I had been through a lot of therapy. So I was in a pretty good place, but I hadn't unpacked any of the adoption stuff. What did she tell you about the situations around your birth and the relinquishment? She told me that she thought she was doing the right thing, giving me up. She didn't know. The families backed out. And it took me a long time to believe her. It was like an identity crisis. I felt my very identity was based on, I was the rejected, unwanted baby. My parents were the only ones who wanted me. That was my entire identity. And she came in and with one phone call, knocked over the house of cards. And I had almost a breakdown. I didn't know who I was. If that wasn't true, what was? It's really hard. Even though it was good news, I didn't know how to process it. And I think that's the hard part about being the contacted person. There's no preparation. One day there's a call. Hello. Whatever weaknesses in your psychological edifice are going to be expanded. She sent me a fax of her. This was 1994. It was the kind where it wouldn't go, you know, and it would slowly print. And I was standing in my office at work watching her face slowly populate from her hair, then a little bit of forehead, eyebrows. It should be in a movie. (laughs) It's a very dramatic, slow reveal of her face. I feel like that's the end of The Usual Suspects. (laughs) Who knew? Her parents knew? She told her brothers, who did not know, she was the went away for a semester abroad kind of nonsense. So even her brothers didn't know she was pregnant, but she had told them when she decided to look for me. So her brothers knew and her partner knew. But that was it. Her parents didn't know till later when she found me. She didn't tell them when she was looking. And then we met when she flew down to Burbank Airport. We have a great photo of ourselves underneath the baggage claim sign (laughs) where we met. We were walking around the airport trying to find each other. And then we saw each other and someone took a picture of us and we're hugging. And it says above us baggage claim, which we always thought was pretty funny. (laughs) And it was like... Being completely infatuated, that level of love. We went to lunch. We had our entourages. I had my husband and one of my girlfriends and she had her boyfriend and another friend. Thank heavens they were there because the two of us were just touching each other's hands and everyone else faded away. It was like a rom-com where the world goes away and there was just the two of us gazing at each other. The touching, the hearing her voice, seeing my gestures and her, the mirroring. I never met my dad, but just seeing photos and meeting my siblings, I think equaled about 10 years of therapy. She called me. I pushed back. I said, I have to talk to my parents. Then I called her and said, you need to back off. Fortunately, she'd been warned. That's common. Then I would call her back and we talked for a couple hours. So I gave her all these incredibly mixed messages the first (laughs) couple of weeks. You know, I love you. I hate you. Go away. Come back. Okay. So 28 years ago, pretty good. No secondary rejection in that time. That's quite unusual. None. It is. That's why we did the podcast. We found out how rare that is. And we wanted to share what reunion looks like almost 30 years later. She spent most of her life punishing herself for what she did. Derailed her life. She was the family shame. All that shame is so exhausting, isn't it? I think it contributes to the secrecy in my paternal side of the family. I was told I need to remain a secret. I didn't expect that. First of all, I didn't expect to find living relatives. Shame of what? I I think it's often people don't even know. 
I have the same exact situation. My birth father, who I did search for, will not meet me and told all of his other children. None of them are supposed to have any contact with me. That's because I'm the secret. And you've seen photos of him? I found him on Facebook. (laughs) Very low tech. Because I had his name. My birth mother told me basically all I needed to find him. So how did it go with your dad? Did you at some point... You're in a reunion with your mom and you start thinking about him or does she tell you, by the way, this is his name? I never really thought much about my birth father until I met my birth mother. And then I thought, oh, wait, hey, (laughs) I could find out all of my genetics now. My birth mother found me when I was 30. And then the very next year I got pregnant with my one and only child. That was so exciting to think, oh, I could actually be an adoptee who knows the genetic information for my child. That's what inspired me to to look for him. I was really sensitive about being contacted. I asked my husband at the time to make the phone call to my birth father so that it would be one level detached because I remembered how jarring it was for me to be contacted. So David made the call and I had a list of questions for him, everything from genetic information, things like that, all the way up to, are you interested in meeting me? So it was in priority, however long he could keep him on the phone, (laughs) just kick through the questions. Yeah, it was a very weird phone call. The first thing he said, I thought that matter had been taken care of. Oh boy. So you can imagine the conversation didn't go very long. He was willing to give a little bit of information. He asked to not be contacted again. At the time, my parents were alive and I just wasn't ready to face that. So I let it go for 20 years. And then one day I woke up in the middle of the night and I had to find him. That's when I looked him up, found him on Facebook and I cyber spied on him for a while until I worked up the nerve to contact him. And I wrote up a very nice note had people look at it, slept on it. And then when I reached out to him, he still wasn't interested. And then he told all of his children not to have contact with me too. One person who I will not mention violated his wishes and told me what he'd said. One of the children. One of the children. But it was like, I'm not supposed to even be talking to you because of this and we can't have another conversation. So they're all adults and they're all obeying this wish. I know. Isn't that funny? Have you found out anything or do you want to find out anything is what he does or is he retired or what did he do? He's just a black box. It's hard to face that kind of rejection again and again when someone's very clear. I don't want to know you. I don't want to meet you. I just feel it would be really sad for him and me if we never had any contact and he then he just dies and I never had the chance. Maybe the kids don't even know. Maybe he's just bluffing. Have you contacted the kids? It's so tricky, isn't it? Do I have a right to go marching into their lives? We have to gear ourselves up for these things. It's not just like, oh, maybe today I contact a brother. It's like, all right, maybe in three weeks, you know, let me start planning now. And now you're in Australia. And how long have you been doing the podcast? A couple of years now. The first year we did our relationship, just talking through how we met, how it's been, how it's going. And then the second year, we had people come on and we interviewed them. People that inspired us, that had been through their own struggles. Not all adoptees. Well, how did your mom take it? You kind of left her in California, I hate to tell you. (laughs) I talked to her about it. No, I talked to my mom and I talked to my kid. She met my now husband, my Aussie husband, first time he came to America to visit me. I was like, you have to meet him and you have to bless him. And I dated him for a 
few years before I moved here and it was with her blessing. If I could maintain a relationship, a romantic relationship with WhatsApp, it was, <laughs> then I could certainly maintain a relationship with my birth mother. She and I have never lived near each other anyways. Did she name you? As a matter of fact, she did. But because of the closed adoption, I was told that the nurses named me in the orphanage. So I didn't know she named me. My birth mother named me Victoria, Victoria Ann. My mom and dad were going to name me another name. But when they got me, all the nurses called me Vicky in the Crippled Children's Hospital, which is just a horrible name, isn't it? I was called Vicky by the adoption agency and the nurses and everything. And they tried calling me the name they'd chosen, but it didn't feel like a fit. So then they made it more fancy and called me Victoria Ann. So I ironically got back to the exact same name, but I never knew that Barb had named me. I was told it was the workers at the hospital. You look like a Vicky. <laughs> yeah. And that was um, during the weekend that they had my parents take me home on loan, if you can imagine, because they were so afraid my mom and dad would back out because the other families had, they were said, well, we want you to take her home for the weekend and see how you feel if you really want to do this. <laughs> can you imagine? For the weekend. <laughs> like a loner baby. I don't know. Are you sure? Are you sure? I know. Crazy. Let's take this baby. I don't know. She's not perfect. Are we sure we want an unperfect baby? Hmm. <laughs> People say adoptees aren't things. And I'm like, really? Then why are we not taking it for damage? Give me a break. Talking about being expats, we're kind of trained for that. I'm so fine with being the outsider. There is something about being somewhere and not really being there. I mean, you were certainly shaped to be able to do that, right? <laughs> yeah. The observant outsider. How far away are wild kangaroos from you? Within a short bike ride. The wildlife here is crazy. You have to come. Are they like deer in North America? Yeah. The farmers hate them because they find a way to get underneath any fence. They have really strong legs. They'll dig a kind of a trench underneath any fence. They can hop over things and dig underneath them. They're like deer in that you see them early morning, late at night. And they're kind of annoying because they eat some of your plants, but there's still something kind of sweet about it. Like if you see a family of deer, you go, oh, it's kind of like the way people feel about squirrels. I would say more than deer. Do they try to sneak around? They're not very bright. They have no road sense. They get killed hopping across traffic all the time. They're hypervigilant. If you see one, they stop and freeze and look at you. If you get too close, they'll hop away. It's really cute to see the joey in the pouch. They're pretty magical. They're so Australian. <laughs> well, hopping is just funny. <laughs> yes, hopping is very funny. <laughs> what a story. Thank you, Vicky. I cannot imagine anybody having looked for me. What I mean by that is the feeling of being found and how you have to adjust to the new reality. Good for the both of them to still be hanging in there after almost 30 years. Amazing. Thanks for listening to Secret Sun. Please like, subscribe, write a review, head over to Patreon, tell a friend about it. That's the most important thing, but it's all important. Let's be honest. We have to keep the lights on here at Secret Sun. See you next time.